Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We had a good time last week. Uh, we've been sitting on 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. So you want to look at those verses in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 20 through 28. And we've looked at it three different ways. We first saw that we saw the S word in the ultimate goal of history. And we saw that the ultimate goal of history in this passage is found in verse 28. And everything's going to be submitted to God the Father. And God is going to be all in all. Then the next week we looked at the first fruits and the ultimate goal of history. And we looked at, uh, if you look at verse 23 and uh, verse, where is it? It's in there twice. Uh, verse 20 and verse 23, Christ is called the first fruits. And we saw how his resurrection over 2,000 years ago set in motion and guarantees that the end of history, where all things are submitted to God, it is guaranteed to happen because Christ started it all with his resurrection. Then we kind of got into it last week with three views of the ultimate end of history. And we looked at amillennialism. We looked at premillennialism, and we looked at dispensational premillennialism. And we saw how, look at uh, verse 23, it says, each in his order. These resurrections take place in a specific order. And it's uh, the picture I get from that, uh, Amber's in marching band, so she's marched in Gladfest, she's marched in the snake parade, and we always position ourselves, and the bands, all the local bands, high schools come through, and they each come in their own order, and we're always wanting to know where North Kansas City Hornets are at, and are always anticipating when that, and so they come through, and they come through, and then we chase that order all through the band, which is kind of funny too, seeing us run around doing that. But that's kind of the idea. Each comes in their own order. But they're all part of the same parade. They're all part of the same parade. And so all these resurrections are a part of God's program for fulfilling the end of history, but they come in a different order. Well, let me say a couple of things about last week. Well, first of all, great response from you, everybody. Very interested. A lot of response afterwards. So we're going to take a look at it again. But let me just say about these three views that we looked at last week. First of all, they can't all be right. Do you agree? They can't all be right, okay? So the question becomes, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture, and we have to go with the one that best puts all the pieces of the puzzle together. So Jerry and Vicki, they were on vacation last week, and they made at least, what, five puzzles? Too many to count, right? There's at least five that I that I know of. And so when you put a puzzle together, you got to put all the pieces. And they do really big puzzles with a lot of pieces. And that's kind of what we do with Scripture. We have all of Scripture, and there's a lot of pieces to put, to put together. And so you want to go with the view that best puts all the pieces together. And I don't care how you do it, you're always going to have a few extra pieces or a few missing places. Does that make sense? Because none of us have this all figured out because it's the whole counsel of God for the end of history. Uh, But all these views, even though no one view is totally, uh, uh, they can't all be right, they all have certain things in common. They all have the same ultimate goal. God, everything submitted to God. So what's more important than what your view of the end times is, is is your life submitted to God? 
Are you with me? So there's a lot of people that can be very proud and very arrogant about their view of the end times, but the goal is everything's going to be submitted in any view, submitted to God, so the question is, are you submitted to God? Uh, Resurrection is how history is going to get to the end that God intends. Whether there's one, two, or three resurrections like we saw last week, it's going to be resurrection. Uh, Third, Christ's bodily resurrection in all three views is the first fruits. All three views agree, hey, over 2,000 years ago, Christ bodily rose from the dead. Another thing that they all have in common is that Christ's return at the second coming is going to be bodily, real. So they have that in common. You know, so there's a lot of things that we have in common. The ultimate goal, submitting everything to God, that Christ's resurrection set it all off, and that Christ will one day bodily return. Uh, another thing that they all have in common that we sometimes forget is all three of these views teach that persecution, suffering, apostasy, and tribulation will increase as we get closer to the second coming. Sometimes, when the rapture is taught, the rapture of the church, uh, for many years, I think, and for many people, they think, hey, we're going to escape all the hard times. Well, we are going to escape the wrath of God on this earth. We're going to escape hell being unleashed on this earth. But what we will not escape is greater persecution, greater suffering, Greater tribulation. America's day is coming. The rest of Christians in this world fully understand that. Right? You know, they're like, miss out on persecution. Where have you been? That's all we've been enduring. Okay? But all these views agree with that. One last thing they all agree on is they all have a rapture. Did you realize all three of these views have a rapture? But what they disagree on is when the rapture occurs and why it occurs. All right? So there's a lot in common with all these three views, but there are some differences. And the rapture is a main one. And so today what I want to do is look at the rapture and the ultimate goal of history. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back through all three views and we're going to apply them to this passage, 1 Corinthians 20 through 28. And we're going to see how each view handles 1 Corinthians 20 through 28. And hopefully, I think you'll see at the end that one that handles it the best is, is dispensational premillennialism. And, and I'll show you why that is. So let's, let's take it. Are you ready to dive into that? And already some of you have asked, hey, I got questions about last week. Can I get with you? Yes, I'm willing to get with anyone, talk with anyone. You can email me. You can, uh, we can set up a breakfast, lunch, coffee, whatever. So we all have questions. I have questions. I may have some questions for you that you can help me out because uh, this has been uh, quite a study for the last few weeks. So let's take a look at it. How the three views of the ultimate end of history handle 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And... If you weren't here last week, all these messages, I'm going to get them up on the website this week, and so you can go back and listen to last week, and that'll, that'll help you with this week. But let's dive in. View number one was this. Only one bodily resurrection in the future of the saved and the unsaved at the same time. Got a little chart there, same one from last week. It's called amillennialism. Notice uh, what you have in your notes. Amillennialism teaches that after Christ returns, there is no literal physical kingdom for a thousand years. That's why it's 
amillennialism. Uh, amillennial. Ah, meaning no, there is no millennial on earth as predicted in Revelation 20, just the new creation with its new heaven and the new earth. So it kind of looks like this. Christ resurrected over 2,000 years ago. Next thing that's going to happen is the second coming. And uh, all believers that are living will be raptured, meet Christ in the air, and come immediately right back down. So he's going to come down. The dead in Christ will rise, will resurrect. The living will be raptured, and we all come right down, and we go right into the new creation. There is no kingdom. That's why it's ah millennial. So what's that mean? Number two, in relation to First Corinthians fifteen, Christ, the first fruits, and then there is one general resurrection of the saved and the unsaved. So now let's go through this passage and see how an ah millennialist would uh, understand it. So look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So who is, so you have to ask, who is those in Christ and what is his coming? Are you with me on what we're doing? Does that make sense? Okay, so you got to answer these questions. And this is how this view would do it. Those who are Christ equals all saved. So that's what you want to write in there. Those who are Christ are all saved. Now, what's interesting is that's true. That's in in this view, it's all saved, even though everyone is resurrected at this point, unsaved and saved. But since Paul says those who are Christ, the unsaved don't belong to Christ. So, in this view, everybody's resurrected, but Paul is only focusing. On all believers. Old Testament and New Testament. Why? Because the church replaces Israel. So what coming is this? Here's what you want to write down. This is the second coming. According to this view, the coming here is this. The second coming. So this is how an amillennial would understand this passage. In the amillennial all millennial position, all, all saved and unsaved rise up at this time. So why does he make no mention of the unsaved besides the view being wrong, I think? Well, the reason is Paul's focus is on the resurrection of the saved in this passage. He's not talking about the unsaved. Besides, Paul never mentions the resurrection of unbelievers in any of his epistles. So it doesn't surprise us that he doesn't mention it here because he really doesn't mention it anywhere, even though he believed in it. In any of his letters, he never mentions it. And the resurrection of the unsaved are still implied because he says on down that death is defeated, death is abolished. And the only way you can abolish death is for everybody to be resurrected. So, you know, the resurrection of the unsaved is in there in the amillennial view, but Paul is focusing on only one, only the saved who who are resurrected, even though in their view everybody's resurrected at this time. Well, let's go down to verse 24. There's another question we have to ask. Notice what verse 24 says. Um, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, did I write that right? The kingdom to, I'm sorry, hands over the kingdom to 
the God and Father when He has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. So what is the end for the amillennialist? The end is the present age and the beginning of the age to come. So here's the end. It's real simple in the amill view. Then comes the end. And what's the end? The end of this age and the, and the start of the new creation. All right? Or, we also said the end could be just the goal, the goal of history. And the goal of history is that God is submitted to all things, and that happens right here. All right? So there's two options there. Let's keep moving. Verse 25. For Christ must reign until God has put all Christ's enemies under Christ's feet. I kind of filled that in for you so you'd understand what that means. Verse 25, for Christ must reign. So now here's the key question. What is the reigning? What is Christ reigning in the amillennial uh, uh, view? Here it is. The reign here is the spiritual reign from heaven. The spiritual reign from heaven. Christ must reign until all his enemies. So, in this view, the reign of Christ is up here in heaven. From here to here. And if you notice, that means his kingdom is never physically on the earth in the amillennial view. That's why it's amillennial. Does that make sense? Okay, so he's only reigning, he's reigning up here in heaven, and the only people reigning with him are dead believers, Old Testament and new, who don't have bodies. You know, they're in their intermediate state. So everything about this kingdom is spiritual, it's not bodily, it's not physical, there's no resurrection involved in that kingdom. Because the resurrection happens here, and it doesn't go into the kingdom, it goes into the new creation. So the kingdom's up here spiritual, while believers that are alive are going through tribulation this whole time. So, not a very, really very attractive view. And, according to this view, Satan is bound this whole time. Because according to Revelation 20, he's bound. So now you've got to explain, how can Satan be bound when he is roar, uh, prowling about, stalking his prey as a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against heavenly powers, uh, or against uh, forces and demonic forces in heavenly places. Uh, the devil is deceiving. He blinds the hearts and the minds of the unsaved. So all that, well, he's supposed to be bound. You know, what's going on? And so there's, that's, that's, how they, that's their view. Um, what I want you to see about this view, there is never a physical, because this is the kingdom up here, there is never an actual physical kingdom of Christ subduing all things on the earth. It's always up here in heaven. All right? Okay. Now, what are the problems with the amillennial view in relation to 1 Corinthians 15? The key problems is in verse 23 and 24. There are two time indicators. Look at verse 23. He says, Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then in the New American Standard it says, After that. Circle those words. It may be then, it may be something different in your translation, but it's a time indicator. After that. 
those who are Christ at His coming. Then look at verse 24. Verse 24 begins with another time indicator. Then. Okay, circle that word. Then. So you have these two time indicators. Two different Greek words, but they mean the same thing. There is a lapse of time. The only problem is... In this view, there is no lapse of time between his, the, the resurrection of believers and the end. There's no lapse of time. They happen simultaneously. Okay, so he says, in the Amil view, he says, after that, first Christ the first fruits, and then after that, here's the time over 2,000 years, and then, and it means after that, another lapse of time, uh, or I'm sorry, after that, we're resurrected. Then after that, the end. And the only problem is there's no, there's no time lapse. No time lapse. And yet in the text, there needs to be one. So that's a problem for this view. Because everything's taken at the same time. Um, another problem that we talked about last week with this view is there's never a literal fulfillment of this kingdom on earth. Now, some amillennials call themselves earthy amillennialists, and they say, well, it's fulfilled in the new creation. You know, these promises, all these kingdom promises in the Bible, they're fulfilled in the new creation. They are, but this is the new creation. It's not the kingdom. So that creates a problem for this view. So, where is the now, not yet, in the amillennial view of the kingdom? Well, here's what I want you. Here's the answer, and then I'll, I'll explain it. Where is the now, not yet, in the amillennial view of the kingdom? This view practically has all now and very little not yet. Has all now and very little not yet. We have been saying, or the Bible teaches, there's this now, not yet aspect of the kingdom. The kingdom is now spiritual. But one day it's going to be physical and on the earth. The only problem in this view, it's all this and that, there's very little. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? The kingdom is all now and it's spiritual, but there's no not yet physical kingdom on earth. Alright? Now let me take you one step further. The problem with the amillennial view is it tends to spiritualize all of God's promises about being literally fulfilled in the kingdom. So much so that people that hold this view tend to even spiritualize the new creation. You would think, okay, finally, there's a new heavens, there's new earth. Now we're in our resurrected bodies. Now we're here. Now we can get physical. Now we can enjoy the the literal fulfillment. But recently there was a uh, seminar put on by the Gospel Coalition called Coming Home, the New Heaven and the New Earth. So they had a whole seminar on this teaching, on the New Heavens and the New Earth. But there was a, uh, a seminary prof that was he blogs on the Internet, and he went to the conference, and here's what he said about the conference. And I thought this was very revealing. He said, the Gospel Coalition uh, is, uh, conference is an inspiring time of preaching, singing, and making and renewing gospel friendships. The plenary sessions were what you would expect. John Piper was passionate, Don Carson was erudite, and Tim Keller was very cool. 
Keller spoke to 6,000 people as if he was speaking casually to each of us individually. I'm not sure how to describe what he's got, but I want it. I get it. I got it. I understand that. I would want that too. Then he goes on and he says this. A curious aspect of the conference is how few of the plenary speakers addressed the theme. What was the theme? The new earth and the new heavens, the new creation. Some seem to go out of their way to downplay the significance of the new creation. One said this, Jesus is our home. Another said this, heaven is about Jesus. It's not about visiting your mother. One said that being heirs of God means we inherit God. And then he skipped over the new creation verses in the text that he was preaching while thoroughly explaining the verses before and after it. What is he saying? He's saying that those who hold this view, even when they have a whole conference about the new creation, which is on earth and very physical and very bodily, they're still spiritualizing it. Okay? Heaven is about Jesus. But it's about hugging on your mom if she's born again. It's about being reunited and and partying and feasting and enjoying the new heavens and the new earth. It's about getting physical with God there on the new heavens and new earth. You know, we can't just keep spiritualizing this stuff. There's a earthly fulfillment of this that we get to bodily... Why be bodily resurrected? And why have a new earth if there's no physical things we get to do there? Now, it'll be totally different than this life. I get that. But it's going to be very body, body, bodily. I don't even know how to say it. It's going to be bodily. It's going to be earthly. But it's going to be glorified. And it's going to be wonderful. And we're going to be doing things that many people think you don't do in heaven. Like sit and enjoy a meal. I mean, Jesus himself said, look, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine at the Last Supper until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be eating and drinking. So, I just think that was interesting. The, the, this focus on thinking, uh, and then what's interesting about this whole spiritualizing, this is the very problem that Paul was trying to fix with the Corinthians. The Corinthians basically and almost had an amil position. They thought they were reigning now, here on earth. We don't need that physical fulfillment. We don't need that physical, because we're already... And Paul said, man, I wish we were reigning now, because I'm out here suffering. I'm out here being persecuted. I'm out here, you know, my body's wasting away. I wish we were in the kingdom, all right? And so those are the problems with this view. Okay, well, let's see how view two applies to 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the second view that we looked at last week. View number two, two bodily resurrections in the future. First, all the saved, and then later, all the unsaved. This view is called historic premillennialism. And what happens here is you have the first resurrection and then you have a literal thousand-year kingdom and then you have another resurrection of the unsaved and then you come to the new creation. Does that make sense? All right. So you got a thousand-year kingdom. So you got your first resurrection of all saved. And then you have your second resurrection of just the unsaved. And that's historic premillennialism. So let's look at your notes. Historic premillennialism teaches that Christ returns before, before there is a physical kingdom 
for 1,000 years. That's why it's called premillennialism. On the earth, as predicted, after which is the new creation with the new heavens and the new earth. So, amil, no kingdom. Premill, there is a kingdom on earth before the new creation. And so, number two, Christ the first fruits, and then there are two resurrections. First, all saved, and then second, the unsaved, after the kingdom. So, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see how they understand the, the, these verses again. So, look at verse 23 in your Bible. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So, who are those who are Christ, and what is the coming? Here's the answers. In the pre-mill view, just all saved. Who is those who are Christ? Just all saved. Why is it just all saved? Because the unsaved are not resurrected for another thousand years. Make sense? All saved. And the reason it's all saved too is because the church replaces Israel. These are all saved, Old Testament and New Testament. No difference. Old Testament and New Testament saved. All right? Which What is the coming that he's talking about? It's the second coming. It's the second coming. Okay, so that's the coming. So it's just all saved and it's the second coming. When those alive will be raptured to meet Christ in the air and come right back down. So in that way, the amil, pre-mill see the second coming in the same way. The difference is, Pre-mill says only saved, resurrected, and the unsaved are resurrected a thousand years later. Now, so look again at verse 23. Then those who are Christ at, are at His coming. Why does, Christ, why does the Bible, why does verse 23 only mention those who are Christ being resurrected? Well, the pre-mill position has an easy answer to that because that's the only ones that are resurrected at His coming. Are you with me? Whereas in the Amil position, unsaved are resurrected, and you have to say Paul's ignoring them. Well, okay, he tends to always do that. But in this view, it makes much more sense. Those who are Christ at His coming, the reason he only mentions them is because they're the only ones that are resurrected at this time. The rest are not resurrected for a thousand years. Make sense? And yet... The resurrection of the unsaved is in this passage because he says death is, a, is abolished. And what's really cool is when you study Revelation 20, these are resurrected and death is thrown into the lake of fire all at the same time. So it's very, it, it makes a lot of sense for the abolishing of death to stand and represent for the resurrection of unsaved people. All right. Now let's go to verse 24. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Fa- God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. Well, in this view, the pre-mill view, what is the end? Well, there's still two options. The end is the end of this present age, but more specifically, the end is the 1,000-year kingdom. Let me get my, one. The end of the 1,000-year kingdom, where Christ hands over everything to God where he is all in all. So you see how the difference, the end? For the Amil, the end is here. For the pre-mill, the end. And then if you look at the verses that we've been studying, verses 24 through 28, 
it really makes sense for all this to be taking place during this thousand-year kingdom where he's subjecting all things. He, there's a process going on where he is submitting uh, or, or reigning over the earth. You know how the Bible says he's going to rule with a rod of iron? Does that sound pleasant? No, the rod of iron means I'm judging, I'm putting down, I'm subjecting all things, I'm putting all rebellion down. And that's what's going on here. That's what's going on in that time period. Or the end could be, as we have said all along, the end could still just be talking about the ultimate end where God is all in all. All three views can hold to that. Okay. Now, verse 25, what's his reign? Verse 25, for Christ must reign until God has put all of Christ in, uh, until God has put all of Christ's enemies under Christ's feet. Now, the reign here, and here's what you want to fill in your notes, the reign here is the actual reign on earth. The actual reign on earth. Christ may still be reigning up here in heaven during this time, but the, the he must reign until all this is subjected is an actual reign on earth with believers in glorified, resurrected bodies. So there's a physical reign, it's glorious, it's bodily, and it's here on earth. Between his second coming and the end of his thousand-year kingdom, all the saved who have died actually reign with Christ on earth in their resurrected bodies. And instead of the idea of Satan being bound during this time period when we cannot imagine him being bound, he's being bound during this time period. When? When Christ is submitting all things to Himself, when Christ is ruling with a, a rod of iron, when there's going to be glorious things going on this planet, which is not a new creation, it's still a fallen creation, well, how is all this blessing and glory going to happen? Well, first, Christ is, is large and in charge on the planet. Can we shout an amen? amen? Okay, we'll finally have a leader that's perfect, no matter what uh, political party you hang with. Amen? Because if you're checking it out the next election, nothing's looking real exciting. But one of the reasons you have these blessings is because Satan is not... He is literally bound in an abyss, and it's sealed, and it's shut, and he cannot escape. Man, won't that, wouldn't that be great? Won't, won't that be great to live on this planet at a time when the devil cannot deceive and cannot rebel? Um... Therefore, there's an actual physical earthly kingdom of God with resurrected, glorified Old Testament and New Testament saints reigning. And Christ is literally sitting on a physical throne in the city of Jerusalem, in a literal palace, in a, in fulfilling all these promises that you read all about in the Old Testament. What are the problems with this view? Well, let's look at the problems. The problems for the premillennial view in relation to 1 Corinthians 20 through 28. Well, here it's real easy. There are none. There are no problems with the premillennial view. Why? Because I said all along in verse 23, you have a time indicator. First, the Christ, uh, first Christ, the first fruits. After that, that's the first time indicator. 
Then those who are Christ, yes, all saved, then the end, which is another time indicator, and that's, that allows for that time. So it fits with it quite well. The premillennial position has plenty of room for the passing of time between the first resurrection and the second that Revelation 20 talks about. And it makes sense of Revelation 20. We talked about that last week. Now, what's the down, down parts? The down, there are some problems with this view. And the biggest problem is it still equates the church with Israel. And all of this kingdom fulfillment is not really for the nation of Israel. It's just for all believers. And so there's not a literal fulfillment of the kingdom for the people of Israel in the future. So it's more physical than Amil, but it's still not fulfilling literally everything for the church. So they wouldn't, you know, it's just, there's just not an Israel character, uh, an Israel or a Jewish character to this kingdom in this view. But there's a couple other problems with it. Notice in your notes. This view also has difficulty explaining at least two things. First, that the church will be kept from the hour of God's wrath poured out on the earth. There's a couple passages in Scripture, and I have them listed there. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, which says this, that the, church is, uh, that the Thessalonians were waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Rescues us from the wrath to come. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. For God has not destined us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the pre-mill view, just like in the on-mill view, the church is still here going through this time of God's wrath on the earth. What we would call the Great Tribulation. Remember how I said at the beginning of this lesson, all three views say there's uh, going to be an increase of suffering, persecution, apostasy, and, and God's wrath being poured out? Well, in this view, just like in the on-mill view, we are going to go through that. The only problem, this is a time of God pouring His wrath out on the earth, and I just read you two verses that said we're going to be rescued from the wrath to come. So how do you handle that? Another problem with this view is, if you read Revelation, in Revelation 19, it says that there is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then there is the second coming. And then there is the kingdom. That's Revelation, okay? Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Marriage Supper of the Lamb, Second Coming. And the Marriage Supper of the Lamb is uniquely tied to the judgment seat of Christ. The only problem is all this is taking place in heaven. But in this view, the church never gets to heaven. The living church never is in heaven. It's raptured and comes right back down. So when does the Marriage Supper of the Lamb take place in heaven? According to Revelation 19, and when does the judgment seat of Christ take place? Premillennialism, historic premillennial, premillennialism has a problem explaining that. Well, let's see. Now, where's the now not yet in the premillennial view? Well, it's very healthy. It's very much here. Here's the kingdom is now. It's spiritual. Christ is reigning from heaven. But here's the not yet. 
It's going to be physical on earth. Does that make sense? So there's a, there's a very, there, or let me put, how did I put it in, my, in, in your notes? There is a, this view has a proper balance between now, not yet. There's a proper balance. There's a now and there's a not yet in this view. There's a proper balance between the now, not yet, but there's very little not yet for the nation of Israel. There's no not yet for the nation of Israel because Israel is the church. The church is Israel. So there's a now not yet for the church, but Israel misses out on her kingdom promises. That's a problem. All right, that brings us to the third view. Pre-trib rapture that makes this view is what makes this view unique. So let's look at view 3. We saw it last week. Three resurrections in the future. First the church, then Israel, tribulation martyrs, and finally the unsaved. So look at your chart there. The first resurrection is the resurrection and rapture of just the church before the great tribulation, and they go up to heaven. In fact, you ought to take on that. See if I've got. Take that arrow for that first resurrection. Just take it all the way up above into heaven. Okay, that should be on there. So take that first arrow because we're up in heaven, and then we come back down with Christ after the great tribulation. That's when the second resurrection takes place, Israel and the tribulation martyrs. And then the third resurrection is at the end of the millennium uh, where uh, the unsaved are resurrected. All right, so let's look at your points underneath that. First of all, dispensational premillennialism teaches that Christ returns before there's a literal physical kingdom, so it's just like premillennialism. That's why it has it in its name. But he also comes to resurrect and rapture the church before the great tribulation. All right, our chart is getting really ugly, isn't it? All right, so what do we what do we have here? We now have three resurrections. And this resurrection is the rapture of the church where Christ comes down and gets us. All living believers, which is the church, are resurrected and we are in heaven. And this is where the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. This is where the judgment seat of Christ takes place in heaven. And we are delivered out of the wrath to come of the seven-year tribulation, just like 1 Thessalonians teaches. Then, there's no rapture here. Instead, there's just the second coming. We come back all... This isn't all saved. These are Old Testament saved. And anybody that died in the tribulation... Then there's the thousand-year kingdom, and then the third resurrection is the unsaved. All right? Um, so, what's that? T- this is the rapture right here. So, that's the big difference. That is the big difference. They all have a rapture. The difference in this view is the rapture is, does not immediately come back to earth. We go up in heaven. We escape the wrath of God on the earth, and then we come back to reign and conquer with Christ. All right? So, what's that tell us? Let's go through the passage again. This is our third time through the passage. Look at verse 23 again. Now we're looking at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, they all agree, bodily resurrection of Christ, 
And then those who are Christ at His coming. So again, who are those who are Christ in this passage according to this view? And what is His coming? Well, here's the first answer. Just the saved who are the church. Just the saved who are the church. This is the church age. Here was the time of Israel. The only ones that are raptured, the only ones that are resurrected, are the church. Not all believers, just the church. Only the church. Oh, and then what's the coming? It's not the second coming. Here's the second coming. The coming that he's talking about, those who are Christ, is the rapture. The second coming is the coming here is not the second coming to earth, but the rapture of the church to heaven. The rapture of the church to heaven. Those who are Christ, the church, at his coming, the rapture, is the next event that will happen. Okay? Turn your Bibles first Thessalonians four. First Thessalonians four, thirteen through eighteen. First Thessalonians four, thirteen through as you're turning there, let me ask you a question, like we've been asking. Why is there no mention in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, why is there no mention of the unsaved? Because the unsaved aren't resurrected here. They're resurrected over a thousand and seven years later. It's just the church that is resurrected. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Follow along. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who uh, in the church age who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, first fruits, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep with Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, this pre-trib rapture coming, till the coming of the Lord, who are alive and remain until will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first before the raptured. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them where? In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. So he makes no mention of coming immediately right back down to the earth. He says, look, first they're resurrected, then we're raptured, and then together we meet the Lord in the air. Okay, so drop down to verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and all absolute. So what's the end in this view? Well, in this view, the end is this whole end times. It's that whole, the great tribulation, it's the kingdom, it's the whole, it's the day of the Lord. This whole thing is called the day of the Lord. And it is the end. Or you can take the view that the end is the ultimate end of all things, the goal of all things. Christ is all in all. Now, drop down to verse 25. What's the rain? 
For Christ must reign until God has put all of Christ's enemies under Christ's feet. Here's what you want to fill in. The reign here is an actual reign from heaven to the earth. An actual reign from heaven to the earth. Let me eliminate some of this stuff. Now, what I have for you, I've given you a lot of verses. I can't go into all these verses. But let me just say this to wrap this this part of it up. When you read the book of Revelation, in Revelation 5, there's no one found to open the title deed to the whole earth. The scroll is the title deed, and it has seven seven seals on it. In Revelation 5, the Lamb who was slain, who is standing, resurrected in heaven, takes the scroll. And when he starts opening the scroll, when he starts breaking the first seal... It launches the wrath of God, which culminates in the king, the coming of the kingdom. And if you take those verses in Revelation that I have in your notes, and you read through those, you trace through it, you see that Christ's reigning doesn't start with the second coming. His reigning, His submit, sub, subjecting all things to Himself, begins with the pouring out of wrath over the seven-year tribulation. And the last seventh seal... And the last, the seventh trumpet, trumpet, and the seventh bowl pours out the wrath of God and establishes the kingdom here on earth. So all I'm trying to say is, in the in the dispensational pre-mill view, he he begins to reign from heaven by pouring out the wrath of God. He begins to reign from heaven and he literally comes to earth and then he fulfills for a thousand years a kingdom on earth, not only for the church, but also for Israel and fulfills all of the promises of Israel, literal, in a rebuilt temple, in, a, in, in just all, in every physical way, it is fulfilled for, the, for both the church and the, and the uh, people of Israel. Where's the not, now not yet? In this view, well, the now is Christ is reigning spiritually over the church from heaven. He fills all in all. The not yet is the fullest, most literal not yet for both the church and Israel. Israel gets all of her promises and the church gets all of her promises. And here in the new creation... The Bible ends with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and it says the foundations are the twelve apostles, that's the church, and the gates are the twelve patriarchs, that's Israel. And so you got Israel, church, in one people of God, and yet they're, they're both there. One hasn't replaced the other. One hasn't eliminated the other. All right, are you thoroughly confused? So when you come away from this, what's the biggest weakness with the pre-mill dispensational view or the dispensational pre-mill view with 1 Corinthians 15? And that's why I've taken four weeks and that's why I've wrestled with this to make sure that I'm not just teaching you something that I was taught, which I was taught it uh, over 25 years ago, uh, 30 years ago, but to make sure that it's in Scripture. The biggest difficulty with the dispensational pre-mill view is you don't easily see the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15 until you compare Scripture with Scripture. Does that make sense? You can see the premillennial view. You don't see the rapture easily, but, 
and I'll read this and we will go. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 53. The rapture is in this chapter. Remember, in the passage we're looking at, he's talking about resurrection. He's not concerned with rapture. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, and we'll end with this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We won't all die. But we will all be changed. Everybody's going to get a glorified body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on the immortal. The mystery of the rapture is in this chapter. He does talk about it, uh, but... The first thing he talks about in this chapter is just the resurrection. All right. If you're thoroughly confused, good. Join me and we can be confused together. Okay? But here you say, you know, Chris, I wish you'd just tell us what to believe. No, you don't. That's called a cult. Okay? We're Bible believers at this church, and we want you to study the Bible for yourself. We want you to compare Scripture to Scripture. And I'd rather maybe uh, put you to sleep, bore you, or confuse you. Hopefully I, I didn't do all of those too terribly. But I'd rather show you other views, compare other views, and see how other views uh, agree with Scripture so that you know where we're coming from with what we teach you. Amen? And then if you disagree, okay, tell me, show me where I can improve. I'll listen to you, you've listened to me, but I want you to know your Bibles. Amen? And listen, I think the end of history deserves a little bit of our attention. And I think it deserves a little hard study, and it's going to involve some hard thinking, and you're going to have to reread and compare Scripture, and it's a joy to teach you the Word of God. Okay? So... I hope you enjoyed this. And I hope and today's lesson was a trying to better understand lesson. Are you with me? All right. But the application is real simple. He's coming. Are you ready? All right. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you that uh, we have the word of God to study. Um, Lord, I, I thank you for um, having the privilege of studying your word. And then not only studying it, but standing here and teaching it to these dear people. Lord, these things aren't easy to understand. Good people disagree over much of this, but the main message is clear. You are coming. Times are going to get tougher, and we need to persevere in our belief that you are coming. And that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we need to be ready at any moment to come face to face with you and to give an account for our lives. And Lord, ultimately where all this is headed, everything's going to be submitted to you. So Lord, let my life be resubmitted today. May everybody that's here, none of us understands it all. Some of us may be very confused, but at the end of the day, we all get this. You're God, I'm not. You're my Savior, I submit everything to you. I pray that we live it this way this week. In Jesus' name, amen.